Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we explore California's dynamic and shifting climate, which impacts so much across the Bay Area, region, and state, including our weather, water, land, crops, snowpack, and our air. Just during the past few weeks, we've seen an intense heat wave and spectacular and devastating lightning storms, storms that sparked hundreds of wildland fires all over the Bay Area and Northern California. Fires so large that, as Governor Gavin Newsom pointed out in a news conference this week, they're among the biggest we've ever seen. We've been challenged by this heat wave and by these wildfires. LNU and SCU represent the second and third largest fires in California's history, at least modern recorded history. CZU fire, uh, which has generated a lot of stress for no other reason uh, than in recorded history, we've never seen a fire this size and scope in this region of the state. This is, uh, again, another testament, demonstrable example of the reality, uh, not just the assertion, uh, not just the point of view, the reality of climate change uh, in this state and its impact in this state. These anomalous natural events come on the heels of California's longest and driest drought ever recorded from 2011 to 2019. An article in The Economist from August 26th points out that this drought led to the deaths of nearly 150 million trees in the state which have now dried out and become fuel for fire. My guest is Dr. Michael Anderson, state climatologist with the California Department of Water Resources. Welcome, Dr. Anderson. The lightning storm we had last week that led to this just seemingly crazy amount of fires. And I remember I happened to be up in the middle of the night when these thunderstorms moved in and I'm in San Francisco and my I it took my breath away because I've never seen anything like that in San Francisco. And so I want to talk a little bit about that phenomenon. And it seems unusual. Am I right? Am I wrong? And is it going to become more usual? Yes, it is unusual. Now, this particular storm event with the lightning was contributed by a decaying tropical system that was moving north. I believe it was Hurricane Elida in the eastern Pacific. And the remains of the moisture in that kind of coming ashore near Point Conception, Santa Barbara, uh, San Luis Obispo, but then continuing to move north. Uh, we often see the decaying systems that may come ashore in California, but quickly move on into Arizona. And so it's a little unusual to see it continue to move north. The question, is this going to become more common? There's a really good question. Uh, It's very hard when you have kind of an event you see the first time and you say, wow, that was different. How much should we expect this in the future? Well, there's a good question because you have to try and first diagnose how all those events came to pass and, and what were some of the driving mechanisms. One for having a decaying tropical system, we see those and this one just had an unusual pattern in terms of, of where the moisture field went. Uh, so understanding kind of the nature of that and then trying to figure out, is that just an unusual event due to the way the circulation pattern set up this year? Is that a circulation pattern that may remain unusual, but there may be more opportunities for it to take place? Um, and just because the circulation pattern is there doesn't mean you have a decaying tropical that comes into it and results in uh, real lightning storms that we had. But I looked, you know, back in 2008, uh, we had a lightning storm set off a number of fires, 
heavy smoke in the Central Valley. And uh, I think back then there was about 8,000 strikes in that event at the time, which seemed like that was a lot. And this one, I think, uh, saw reports of 20,000. So it's hard with a sample size of two to say what you have, other than you've had two extremes within a two-decade window. So we've had these two extremes, and of course, extremes can happen at any time, and it doesn't necessarily mean to trend. And as you say, we've got two. We've got a sample size of two. So certainly it's unclear what is to come. But certainly climate has shifted. Oh, yes. Over. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so can, can you talk to me a little bit about that, um, how things have shifted, and, and is there, has there been an acceleration point that you've noticed in the data? What does that mean for us here in California? We know it's gotten warmer. Uh, we see, looking at the data, that you find... Uh, we consistently sample warmer than the period of record average. And uh, we find even the, you know, the cooler years in the 21st century are rather close to the period of record average, not really in the same realm as the cooler years were in the 20th century. So we know it's warmer. Uh, one of the reference points I like to point to is um, 2014, we tied a record low snowpack of 25% of average. That was set in 1977. Uh, the difference was we were about two degrees Fahrenheit warmer on the annual average temperature this time around. You know, Mother Nature wasn't done yet then because in 2015, uh, she let us try on a 5% of average snowpack. So looking at, again, patterns and extremes and how they play out and then how they play out in a warmer world. And it's understanding what that warmer world provides you. Well, the warmer world provides you with more energy for the atmosphere to do things. The opportunity for storms to be bigger, for more energy to be transitioned from being available to being used. The other element that's really interesting is if you get to particular thresholds where certain physical processes can happen. In the case of convective storms, you have a certain point where you get enough heating near the surface where the heating itself can create the buoyant instability that allows the air to start rising. And so it's really understanding, you know, where and how those thresholds are crossed and how they intersect with our landscape. This recent storm that we had, uh, the one last week, I know we had another system move through yesterday. Um, are we seeing that kind of engagement between the atmosphere and the earth in California more, more so than we used to? Or was that something that maybe generally always happens in the mountains or in the south and it was a moment in time? It happens in different places. It's certainly, you have elements, like you said, the mountains, well, where the terrain can force the lift of the air. We have a sample size of two extremes over two decades for this type of event. Uh, so it's hard to say. Did the warmer temperatures make it easier to happen Hard to say, like I said, this is definitely one to kind of work with the science community to diagnose it and figure out what were the pieces, what were the contributing factors. And then you can start looking at that question of, okay, now if we increase the temperature, how does that change the possibility of those pieces coming together in that way that results in this outcome? That makes a lot of sense. And as far as the climate change, I get frustrated by... Um, do you believe in it or not? You know, because to me, it's not. Uh, the, the science seems 
convincing to me. I think there's a lot of work been done. Governor Gavin Newsom made a similar point at a news conference this week when discussing California's climate situation in relation to the current fires. We dealt with an unprecedented number of lightning strikes, some 14,000. What we do know is we dealt with unprecedented weather, a heat dome on the west coast of the United States. What we do know is we had 130 degree weather here in the state of California, which arguably, if it's not a world record, it's very close to being a world record, uh, the hottest recorded temperature uh, in modern world history. Uh, we do know that an impact uh, in terms of our capacity uh, to even provide uh, the energy needs, uh, not only here in the state, but put pressure even outside the state. Uh, so that is uh, somewhat anomalous. It's anomalous in the context of what uh, we grew up with. Decades ago, uh, we experienced anomalies, but not as often as we now are experiencing. They're almost becoming exceptions, more like the rule. And as a consequence, it begs the question, is what the scientists have been saying, 98 plus 99 percent of them, for decades uh, taking shape? Uh, is it in fact true that they no longer have asserted a point of view? They've proven their point of view. I would argue uh, they have proven their point of view, where the hots simply are getting hot, hotter. That's demonstrable. That's evidence-based, uh, where the heat is such that we have fires, the likes of which we have never experienced in our lifetime. And that's also demonstrable in terms of the total number of acres burned uh, this year in contrast and comparison to previous years. And in the fact that we've had some of the most ferocious and damaging wildfires in modern recorded history. I'm not naive, not naive about forestry practices over the course of the last hundred years, but I am not in denial about climate change. As I said the other day, Mother Nature has joined the conversation. Uh, it is overwhelming, the evidence. If you don't believe in climate change, I'll repeat, uh, please come to the state of California uh, and we will enlighten you uh, as to the consequences of the earth and its temperatures increasing and the consequences that are having in terms of droughts, not just wildfires, as well as floods. For people who maybe uh, either aren't accepting of the fact that this is happening or who feel that it's more of a natural type process rather than man-made influence. I hear a lot, well, I mean, it's just one event. It's just it's just a random event, so how can you possibly? And, and I'm hearing that a lot more, right? Because as more random events happen or as more things happen that are slightly unusual. <laughs> as we find more unusual extremes, more things where I don't remember this happening when I was younger. This is different. There is an understanding that, yes, this is different, but wanting to ascribe a reason for it is where I, I think the difficulty comes in. And that may be a more sociological question than a science, um, climate science question. I think that's fair. But what I would say to you is, as someone who spends your days and your hours and your, and your career focusing in here, not that I'm asking you to convince people who maybe aren't convincible, but what would you say... Looking at the models, and it, not just this storm, but all of those unusual events that seem to be sort of happening more frequently, all of the, huh, this is different. That's exactly the argument I give, is, is that how many times do you find yourself thinking, I don't remember this happening in the past? And just kind of saying, okay, we see that. We see the observations that temperatures are warmer now. And we can see science pointing to when it gets warmer, you have more opportunities for these outcomes to happen. You just 
kind of present the information in pieces. And at that point, then they can decide to, you know, like I say, I think they've made the step where they acknowledge things aren't the same as it was when I was younger. That's true. That's true. It's, it's trying to understand. And, and this becomes the really hard part is not only understanding saying, okay, this is different now, but understanding that you're now in a dynamic period where change is more to be expected than the expectation that things stay the same. Um, and there are elements that things stay the same. We, we still have four seasons. We still have length of day that hopefully, you know, the orbital period of the earth <laughs> stays reasonably constant there that, you know, we can count on those aspects being the same. Yeah. yeah that one would hope or else that, that's big implications for us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, uh, you have those elements, but then it's just understanding within the context of those elements, what are the different pieces that change and what are those impacts that then unfold? And then how are ways that we can adapt to the, a more dynamic environment that we live in? Uh, in California, we're fortunate because we already live in a very dynamic environment from the standpoint that we have the largest year-to-year variability in precipitation outcomes anywhere in the continental U.S. Wow. Uh, so that's our starting point. So we're already kind of used to dealing with what's this year going to be? We don't know. Uh, we're pretty sure it's not going to be average because we rarely find ourselves there. Contrast that with the East Coast where their variability is small. So average is a good expectation. Things are the same. Now imagine when that gets disrupted to a point like we experience on a regular basis out here, that's a much bigger challenge to kind of wrap your head around that I can't depend on average. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I almost think in California, we, I mean, there are things we have expectations of, but we do also expect that things are going to be, oh, what's going to be like this year? What's going to be like that year? That's sort of part of our, that's part of our. It's built in because we have experienced that on a regular basis. It's just that now we're starting to experience, again, those things that, wow, that even gets out of the norm for what we're used to. So that's unsettled. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you mentioned the East Coast and it's true when a hurricane makes its way all the way up the eastern seaboard and slams the upper eastern part of the United States, that's a shock. I mean, it happens, maybe it's a a storm that's breaking up, but to be like a full-fledged sort of tropical moment for them is... is To have its characteristics stay intact all the way up into Canada is is somewhat of an unusual... Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So California is, you know, we expect variability, and yet the variability is really, really becoming more variable. And, you know, and we've talked a little bit about weather, and you mentioned the snowpack, but I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how climate does impact things that we do rely on, such as that snowpack, our soil. California grows a ton of food. Um, the vegetation and the animals and our water table. Climate is playing a role, yes, in in shifting those resources? Yeah. Well, we had kind of a, a range that we were comfortable working in and understood that, yes, there were variability within that range. And you can kind of develop in that range and everything works out just fine. Uh, then the variability increases and all of a sudden you're finding more opportunities to get outside your comfort zone. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with Dr. Michael Anderson, state climatologist with the California Department of Water Resources. The challenge here with snowpack is a little tricky because as things warm, 
then you have to get to that magic temperature of 32 degrees to have solid precipitation and have those temperatures remain cold for it to hang around and not just be, you know, storm related snowfall. The other trick is as the warming pushes that snow line up the hill, you have less and less area for that snow to accumulate on. And so if you look like the Sacramento River watershed, 90% of the watershed's below 7,000 feet. Wow. Yeah. And what is that usual? What's the usual? Well, I mean, a, a snow line can be anywhere from 1,500 feet in those really, really cold storms you know, where everybody kind of in the Bay Area, oh, is it going to snow? You know, kind of that excitement, right? Oh, there's snow on Mount Diablo. Yeah. <laughs> it could be snow. Um, to when we have an atmospheric river, we can see freezing elevations go up to 10,000 feet. Okay. Okay. And so there, it's like, okay, we've seen that range of snow down low all the way to rain to the top of the watershed. Now contrast that with the San Joaquin Basin. After you get south of the Stanislaus River, the peak elevations really jump up. Kind of you get into the Yosemite area and south. Uh, all of a sudden, now you're in 13,000, 14,000 feet, and actually half the watershed area is above 7,000 feet. So historically, they accumulate a lot of snow, even in the really warm storms, because they saw watershed area above that freezing elevation. Well, uh, things kind of become interesting then as things warm. Uh, on the good side, they still have a lot of area really up high, so they can continue to accumulate snow even in those years where the Sacramento Basin's not doing as well. The trick then it is if the infrastructure is built around a snowmelt-dominated watershed, and as that snow line creeps up, then you start having more runoff happening in the wintertime. And so you become more active in dynamically managing through that storm and uh, trying to match, again, what you developed in your infrastructure versus what you're seeing transpire with those weather events now. Capturing the rainwater is actually a congressional decision and that California wanted to change the time at which we were capturing the water or... Um, storing it because it was running off sooner and that there was a dance being done between the various governmental agencies. As part of building our infrastructure for water, we recognize, well, we have a lot of purposes for water in the state, right? To manage those big winter storms and try and control the floods that happen. We have a long dry summer where we'd like to have water available for uh, growing crops, having water supply for people, uh, developing our industry. And we'd also like water for the environment, right? We have uh, one of the most diverse in terms of ecosystems on the planet. We're really quite fortunate with that. Uh, same time, we want to make sure that the activities that we do aren't harmful to others. And you try and find that balance. So you set up your infrastructure, you set up your rules. And with the reservoirs, when there are multiple purposes, well, we like to say, well, we're going to leave so much space behind the reservoir unoccupied so that when the big winter storms comes, it can catch that water and then release it at a slower rate, protect the downstream communities. So how long do you keep that window open where you're providing that protection? Well, you can do it because you can let that empty space fill in with snowmelt. Well, if there's less snowmelt to be had, then you start getting that uncomfortable. Well, but I want to fill that in. So when do I do it? Do I try and catch that last storm? How, how do I do that? And if I get a storm and then it goes dry, do I really have to release that water if I know it's going to be dry? And so it's 
learning about how we can take new information that we have available to us in terms of observations and forecasts. And can we apply those in a decision format so that we aren't uh, relying on history's writing uh, of the rules on, on how we manage uh, facilities so that we can extract as much benefit as possible, but we make sure that we either keep the same level of safety or improve upon it. And so it's a really interesting, it's, it's a very active area of work right now. And in the Russian River, uh, is one of the first pilot projects on this in Lake Mendocino. It's been a fascinating effort to watch as that's worked through. So it, it is a very interesting time to watch that evolution and look to see what science can actually bring to the table in terms of helping to inform. Yeah. And what do you, um, as far as what you're working on and where you're focused right now, what do you think are the biggest benefits you can bring to the table as we navigate this, uh, as our state navigates this? Uh, working with the research community on those observations, uh, finding ways to make sure that the observations we bring can reduce uncertainty in what we have there, looking at how we can develop forecasts, understand better uh, the nature and character of the storms, atmospheric rivers in particular, and understand how not only those storms behave as they make landfall in California and interact uh, with the landscape, but how climate change might influence those storms so we have a better understanding of what those future storms might look like so we have a better chance of understanding how we might adapt uh, the way we provide flood protection, water supply, to make sure we can still do the things that we want to do. And so there's the observations, the forecasts, and then finally the decision support, right? You can have a great observation and a great forecast, but if you don't have a way to pull it into making a decision, it hasn't fully helped you yet. Great point. Excellent point. So we've all, over the past several months, you know, in addition to all of these climate events and uh, heat waves and, and, and things like that happening, we've all been dealing with a global pandemic. And when, when we initially sheltered in place here in California, I live in San Francisco, and so we'd go walking, and up on a hill, I'd look across the bay, and the Oakland Hills had never looked clearer. And I promise it wasn't me just imagining it. It was like I could almost reach out and touch them. And I thought, oh, you know, anecdotally, this might be, maybe this is good for us to all take a breath and let the planet take a breath. Um, and of course, now we're back to commerce and industry and movement and but I'm wondering, did that breath, that break, that moment where we all stood still have any sort of positive impact on climate? Was that just not enough? Um, I'd love to get your insight on that. Well, uh, it was actually something that the science community did notice. And they said, boy, let's gather as much data as we can right now and try and save things, even things we wouldn't normally save and try and keep it. Because, yeah, this was an experiment to see if, if we have alternatives to the emissions and things that make the air a little less clear. What does that do for us in those contexts? Um, and so there's a wealth of data now, but now I have to kind of dig through it and kind of see. But your observation there of the Oakland Hills uh, in India from Delhi, they got to see the Himalaya again. Yes. <laughs> Something they hadn't seen in, in a long time. So uh, it's kind of that if nothing else, a chance for people to see what could be, right? And hopefully that then becomes a good motivation. 
what can we do to try and get to where we can still do all the activity we want to do, but do it in a way that we could still have all that fantastic views and clear and um, hopefully better outcomes. I love that you said that people got to see what could be because so much like climate change. I mean, we we think, oh, this is unusual, but it feels nebulous to people who aren't in the science or in it. But we all saw that, you know, I could see the Himalayas. If I'm in L.A., I can see the mountains. If I'm here, I can see the Oakland Hills. I, there was a, a dolphin in the Venice Canals, right? We, we all saw really real and tangible shifts, animals coming out. Uh, yeah, all of this great stuff. And so I love I love the way you phrase that. It's like, what could be, you know, and and the decisions that we make mean this or that, you know, if we continue to make the same decisions, then we don't get to see what could be, right. see something else. Um, <laughs> and on that note, like there's a um, Neil deGrasse Tyson from the Hayden Planetarium. I, there's a quote he has that I love and it's, uh, oh, the earth will be fine. We won't be, but the earth will be fine. And it's one of my favorite quotes. Now I want to use that to sort of frame the question of, and I know you can't necessarily prognosticate, but you know, given what you've been studying and what you've noticed, I mean, what are the implications for us as we push forward, um, the Greenland ice sheet, has it's been announced that its melt is beyond the point of no return, that even if we just stopped activity today, we probably won't see it regenerate, right? So we, we've already sort of pushed past a few points. And I guess my question to you is, if you can answer it, is, you know, based on your scientific knowledge, expertise, and what you've been looking at, what do you see are the implications for the state of California, or even if you want to talk more globally? Well, uh, what I talk to people about is as we continue to manifest signs of change, um, get the question, is this the new normal? And the answer is no. This is the jumping off point into a brave new world. We don't have observations to lean back on to say, oh, this is how we get through this. And that makes life a lot more exciting in a way, a little more terrifying in some other aspects. But we also know that, you know, California has shown this is important to us. We're going to figure this out and we're going to do a lot. And there is a lot of activity going on. And that's really exciting. I was interviewed last year, I think. And somebody asked, well, where would you move to, to, to escape this? And I said, well, I don't want to move because I want to live somewhere where you recognize the challenge and you have the interest in, in rising up to meet it. And I feel like California is that place. Yeah. Yeah. I really agree with that. I think because, you know, I thought it earlier and I'm glad you said this out loud because I, I wanted to note it as well. The idea that we are feeling and seeing and experiencing these shifts, whereas I think there are a lot of places, at least in the country and in, in, around the world, where it hasn't come there yet. And so it still feels far away. We saw that with, the, with COVID-19 as well, right? The coastal areas were affected, New York, San Francisco, LA, and Washington. And people in the rest of the country are like, oh, that's far away. It's nothing. It'll be fine. And now, of course, it's reached so many other parts of the country. And it's become real. And that scale was six months you know, eight months. But the scale of climate change is years, decades. And so I love that you said that you want to be in a place where you can rise to the challenge and meet it. Is this really a bad thing? Like, is, like if climate is changing the way things work, and, and, and I mean, it's bad for humans, but is it a bad thing? So we can get comfortably because it's very easy to do the things we've always done. It becomes routine. 
that's kind of nice because uh, don't have to worry about and think about it. And then, so then finding out the routine doesn't work. So have to change and you, and you try and see, is there anything I can do other than change, right? How much can I keep the same? Can I just tweak a little thing? Kind of, and finally, after exhausting all those options, you finally decide, okay, now I've got to do something. It's disruptive, but the disruption does present opportunity. And what you do with that opportunity, I think, and the outcome is where you determine in the end, did that get you to the Bruce spot? Probably the biggest key is collaboration. Now, when you get to tricky problems, it really helps when you can bring a lot of really good people with different perspectives to the problem and find out collectively it becomes easier to tackle. And seen that number of times recently with a lot of projects I've been fortunate enough to be a part of, is that you bring a lot of perspectives and while it may take some time to figure out the different perspectives and how they can meld together to move forward, once you do, you can create amazing, uh, amazing work. I love that. Thank you to Dr. Michael Anderson, state climatologist with the California Department of Water Resources. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.